please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good afternoon. It's Friday, the 6th of November 2020, and welcome to a very special afternoon Americano. Good afternoon also to our simultaneous translators who are working this afternoon. Uh, if you'd like to listen to this conversation in a different language, then click below. There's a button and you'll have the various languages. You can also send us uh, your questions. Uh, there's another button there, Q&A button, or you can always uh, send emails to nordiafunds at nordia.com. So for this uh, election special, I am joined by Stephen Friedman, who is macroeconomist and managing director at Mackay Shields in New York. Um, hello, Stephen. Hello, how are you, Paul? Hey, I'm fine. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I guess you've had a very busy week. It has been. It's been a very exciting and interesting week. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <Leads> the headlines. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, before I got into my first question, uh, I just wanted to run a couple of scenarios past you and 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 the audience actually as a whole because this election process um, could well see some interesting uh, plot twists before we're finally done. Um, so the first thing to mention is, of course, we're only three days. Um, into this uh, election process or post-election process. This could go on for weeks, couldn't it? And the reason I say that is because we've already seen something similar in 2000 when we had uh, George W. Bush, uh, who was up against Al Gore. And basically this, this went on until sort of early December. So finally Bush was announced winner, but uh, we had to go to the Supreme Court first. Uh, yes. Um, and on the positive side, in contrast to, to 2000, um, there don't really seem to be any significant legal issues uh, thus far, that, that, that at least that I can see. Um, what I also found interesting about the 2000 event was that at the end of the day, the Supreme Court put an end to the recounts that were happening in Florida because they wanted to respect what's called the Safe Harbor Day. That's the day in early December by which states should appoint their electors to the Electoral College. And if they succeed in doing that, Congress essentially has to accept those state level results. Um, so we still have a while to go till we get to that date. So the counting could go on still, still for a couple more weeks. So we've still got a couple more weeks potentially of uh, checking on the, on the news headlines. But um, the good news, if there is a good news, is that actually there's a hard deadline and that is the 20th of January, 2021. And basically if the electoral um, process hasn't completed by then, for whatever reason, um, then actually the Speaker of the House becomes acting president. So in that scenario, we could well see Nancy Pelosi uh, in office. That's a possibility, a far-fetched possibility, but a possibility. There's another possibility, and that's if it's a tied election. So if neither Biden nor Trump get to the 270 um, electoral college uh, votes that they need, then actually what happens in that scenario is that the House of Representatives gets to decide or vote on the president and the Senate ends up voting for the vice president. So that's another scenario that potentially could play out. 
Yeah, there's a, and there's a range of outcomes here. Um, on, on the other end of the spectrum, Pennsylvania has said that they're going to try to finish counting the votes today. And it's possible that Biden emerges ahead there, uh, which would essentially end you know, the election for all intents and purposes. So yeah, a wide range of outcomes that we're looking at in terms of when we may have some finality here. Yeah, exactly. And, and I guess for the sake of this conversation, I think we have to go with the most plausible, most likely as it stands today. And as you hinted at, we've, we've got a little bit more going in the, in the direction of the, the Democrats. So the most likely outcome at this stage is, is that we'll have a split government. Um, we'll have a Democrat White House um, and they'll be holding the House and the Republicans the Senate which would then imply um, that it would be tough uh, for the Democrats to make any substantial changes. So now that we don't have the blue wave, we were talking last time about this yeah. blue wave, uh, that, that clearly isn't gonna happen, but um, I was just wondering how you see now, you know, what politi or policies, sorry, that the Democrats had in the run up to the election, which of those do you think won't go through now? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Yeah, what I saw in the Democratic platform were, was a lot of really big spending initiatives. So big spending on infrastructure, uh, healthcare, education, housing. Those are basically now off the table with Republicans likely to main control of the Senate. Why is that? Well, quite simply, Republicans don't share a lot of these policy priorities. They also wouldn't want to repeal any of Trump's tax cuts to pay for them. Yeah. Uh, and without being able to pay for them, Republicans would be very, very concerned about the impact on the national debt. So that's the first implication. These spending initiatives just, they're off the table. And then mm -hmm. secondly, as I alluded to, you really don't have any changes uh, to tax policy. Trump's signature tax cuts remain in place. So that means no change to corporate taxes, no increase in income taxes for higher income households, and no increase in the capital gains tax rate as well. And then I think the third implication from a legislative perspective is that um, to the extent there was a, a possibility of antitrust legislation aimed at technology companies under the mm -hmm. clean sweep scenario, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty much uh, that that possibility has gone away as well. Okay, so so these are the areas that will potentially stall. Uh, perhaps more importantly, where do you think uh, a Democrat White House will be able to move policy forward? Well, importantly, I think that there's still consensus that some short-term support for the economy is needed as it recovers from the COVID shock. So I do still expect another fiscal support package. Um, it will probably be no more than a trillion dollars, I would guess. Um, mm -hmm. And it would consist of assistance for unemployed workers, perhaps another round of small business loans. I think it's less likely to include another round of checks to households. Um, and I'll be interested, interested to see if there's any aid for state and local governments. Uh, I think that would actually be quite helpful at, at this mm -hmm. point in the recovery. And I was encouraged to hear uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell say a couple days ago that when the Senate comes back next week, uh, not only does he want to move forward with a bill, maybe even in the lame duck period, but he, he's open to the idea of supporting state and local governments. Now, there's a question, is, is a trillion dollars of, of aid enough? Uh, Broadly speaking, I think I think it is actually. Um, you know, households, small businesses, they still do need some support at this point in time. Um, and I think the key is if can we get to the middle of 2021? If you at that point have um, vaccines that are starting to be distributed, or if you have very effective treatments in place, well, having a trillion dollars of stimulus to get you through that period up until that period, that that should suffice. 
So another thing that uh, a President Biden would need to do is, is appoint his administration. Um, yeah. And of course, yeah, uh, one of the key positions for the financial markets, for sure, is, is the Secretary of the Treasury. So I just wondered who you thought uh, would end up uh, replacing uh, Stu Steve Mnuchin uh, in the new year. Yep. So, you know, I guess I would say that I think that the battle over the cabinet is, well, I think it's actually going to be somewhat of a battle. And I say that because um, Biden himself is a pretty centrist Democrat. And yet he got to where he is because of the support of the progressive wing of the party. Um, and that wing of the party is going to want to be represented in the cabinet. Now, I think Biden will have an, an inclusive and diverse cabinet. But I think at the end of the day, the key policymaking positions such as Treasury Secretary will be held by moderates because, well, first of all, Biden himself is a moderate. Second, mm -hmm. I think he's trying to reach out and build some bridges, um, sort of try to put this period of polarization behind us. So I think he'll want to have more centrist uh, cabinet positions. Um, and so what does that mean? It means that somebody like an Elizabeth Warren probably is, is, is off the cards uh, in terms yeah. of uh, Treasury Secretary. We should also keep in mind with the Senate controlling, uh, excuse me, with the Senate controlled by Republicans, mm. they are going to control the confirmation process. Uh, so they'll want yeah. to see a more centrist candidate. So who does that leave us with? It might leave us with former uh, Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson or current Fed Governor Lael Brainerd, uh, who is also a former Undersecretary of the Treasury. So she has a lot of international experience from her prior time at Treasury. They're both very, very well respected by markets. Uh, Ferguson for his time at the Fed during September 11th, that crisis when you know, Greenspan was traveling abroad. Ferguson was essentially running point for the Fed's policy response. And uh, Lel Brainerd has, has had a tremendous run as a governor at the Fed, um, including playing a lead role in the Fed's crisis response currently. Mm. So those are so two possible options. And you mentioned the Fed there, you know, their experience in the Fed. And of course, that's an equally important um, role that needs to be filled in the new year, uh, both, well, it's the policy side and the personnel side, of course. Um, right. what, what do you see in, 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 in respect of that, of things changing there? Yeah, I think in terms of the chairmanship, so uh, Powell's term expires in 2022, so it's not immediate. Um, and I think he actually stands a good chance of being renominated. I think he's seen as having done an excellent job during this crisis in terms of a very uh, muscular and proactive Fed policy response. Also, as you may know, he's introduced a new policy strategy where the Fed is going to delay rate hikes uh, potentially for years until inflation is higher with the hope of achieving stronger labor market outcomes and, and more inclusive growth. And those are really democratic priorities when you think about it. So that policy strategy, that new strategy, first of all, I think it's the right thing to do. Secondly, it's also politically savvy and, and should buy him some credit with Democrats. So I'm not convinced that, that there's a strong urge uh, to change the top leadership at the Fed. I think what will be interesting will be the vice chair for supervision position that's held by Randall Quarles. That position mm -hmm. expires uh, basically in a year. He's rolled back some of the Dodd-Frank banking regulations. Um, so I could see him uh, being replaced by somebody who would uh, want to have a, a somewhat stronger regulatory framework for banks. Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, it sounds like there'll be political compromise on, on both sides. There'll have to be, um, and perhaps a more sort of moderate approach. So no big swings left or right um, going forward. Is that perhaps the best result that, that we could hope for in terms of bringing together what is a, a quite polarized country right now? 
You know, I think it could be. I think Biden's instincts are to play to the center and try to build bridges. Um, and I think he's made the point of saying that you know he will govern on, on behalf of all citizens. Uh, that's something that in a normal uh, um, environment would kind of be boilerplate language from a, from a, a potential president. But in this climate, I think it's it's quite telling. It's very very different from Trump's approach. Uh, that being said, it is still a very very polarized environment. I'm not all that convinced a lot will change. Uh, mm -hmm. If we think about what's happening currently, uh, Trump is trying to delegitimize the election process. Some of his allies are doing the same thing. It's not exactly a great uh, way to start a new <laughs> administration. Uh, no. And also, given the closeness of the election, Trump's sway over the Republican Party, it might not recede for some time. So a, a contested outcome was the thing that everybody seemed to, to fear. And, uh, and the markets have absolutely loved it. Haven't they? It, I mean, everything's up. I mean, the Dow's up, the S&P 500's up, the Nasdaq's up, bond prices are up, yields are down, yeah. of course. Uh, gold is up, Bitcoin is up, uh, you know, metal prices are up. In fact, even oil was up. Uh, so th there were only two things that I could find that, that actually dropped. And one was the dollar um, mm -hmm. and the other one was uranium. <laughs> so um, <laughs> so what, what's going on? Uh, What's going on in stock markets? What's driving uh, this uh, the, these upward movements? Yeah, so I, I think you know to your point, markets tend to like gridlock because it means policy certainty. Um, but I think it also means that you still get some fiscal support for the recovery in the U.S. You just don't get that massive expansionary push that by a Biden presidency with a clean sweep may have led to with all that infrastructure and education and healthcare spending I mentioned. So you still have fiscal support. Um, but you also don't have an increase in corporate tax rates, which uh, markets certainly like. Uh, no higher capital gains tax rate. Um, that threat has gone away. If, if you had the clean sweep scenario, a lot of households may have sold stocks before year end uh, in order mm -hmm. to harvest gains before a potential increase in the capital gains tax rate. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about the tech sector, so really no prospects for antitrust legislation. So as you mentioned, the NASDAQ is, is off to the races, and I think that's why. Um, and then treasury yields are, are lower, um, we've had a strong rally there. And I think that's because there won't have to be a significant expansion of debt issuance to fund some of these uh, priorities of the Democrats since, since, since those look unlikely. Interestingly, uh, we've seen inflation break-evens compress a little bit. So markets mm -hmm. are pricing in a little bit less uh, inflation risk over the medium term. Um, and markets have actually taken out a little bit of Fed tightening over the next five years as well, because there won't be such a strong inflationary push. But yeah, big picture, markets seem quite happy in the short run. I think though what still remains a question is if you do have gridlock, if you do need substantial fiscal aid to the recovery uh, over the course of 2021, that could become a risk that we'll have to keep our eyes on going forward. Mm. How likely do you think that is to happen? Um, I think it all depends really on, on, on the virus and our, our, our the success that we have in fighting it. Uh, as I said, I think if, if we are in a better place by the middle of the year, we probably don't need a lot more fiscal support. Uh, yeah. If we're not in a better place, I think it's a, it's a different story. Yeah. So uh, another thing that's been in the headlines a lot uh, during the Trump presidency has been the, the trade conflict with, with China. And that, that yeah, that's been major news. Do you think we'll see a, a change in foreign policy as a result of the, the new president? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the answer is both yes and no. We, mm -hmm. we will see a, a more multilateral approach from Biden, greater reliance on international institutions, and, and quite frankly, a less chaotic policymaking process. 
Um, but Trump, Trump's true economic legacy is the fact that the US now believes you have to be very, very tough on China. Uh, and this notion that the terms of trade internationally may have been skewed against the US, rightly or wrongly, I think that is now a view that's widely held in the US. So free but fair mm -hmm. trade, that's part of the political lexicon now. Mm -hmm. So what are the implications of all this? I think it actually means that tariffs are going to be really hard to just eliminate on day one. There's a lot of misperception about tariffs in the US. Many believe that tariffs provide a net benefit to the US economy by protecting workers. There's not an appreciation of the fact that it's household and businesses who bear the cost of, of, of tariffs. So that makes it hard to just eliminate tariffs. They're seen as important and protecting workers. And that will be clearly an issue for Europe when it comes to the steel tariffs, for example, that are in place. Yeah. Maybe there a way forward is that um, Biden will work with European allies to put in place a regime uh, to work against other countries that are alleged to be dumping steel on international markets. And once mm -hmm. that regime is in place, that then provides cover for Biden to eliminate those steel tariffs against Europe. Um, on the positive side, Biden won't use tariffs as, as a negotiating tool, as, as a form of leverage, certainly not against allies. That's very positive. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think, um, it will be challenging to completely abandon this idea that the WTO needs to, to be reformed. Now, Biden will have a more um, pragmatic uh, and multilateral approach. I think he'll be happy for the WTO to, again, um, uh, have, have new judges. Uh, so yeah. the, w, the WTO will, again, have teeth uh, and will be functional again. Um, and then finally, what happens with the China trade, uh, trade deal, the phase one trade deal? To be mm. frank, it's kind of in tatters and it's going to be a real challenge for Biden to think about what to do with it. China is really far behind on its purchase commitments. And that's not just because of COVID because China is actually purchasing a lot of these goods from other countries, just not <laughs> yeah. in the US. Mm. Um, so I think it's challenging for him to come in and just say, you know, this deal didn't make sense. Um, we're going to abandon it because that would be seen as um, 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 really negative, for example, for US farmers. Um, so I don't really know what's going to happen with the trade one phase deal. Again, I think it's going to be hard for Biden to just walk away from it. That's going to be one of his early challenges, I think, to think about what to do with, with, with um, that trade deal. Yeah. And also this week, we, uh, we saw that uh, the US officially withdrew from the, uh, the Paris Agreement on carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Biden has already spoken about rejoining uh, pretty much as soon as he takes charge in the new year. So it would just be great to hear what you think um, the implications might be on the, on the oil industry if that happens. Yeah, so as you said, um, Biden has mentioned that this will be a day one priority. So that means you know, 30 days after his administration starts, we will officially be back in the Paris Agreement, assuming he follows through. So I think the blue wave tail risk for the energy sector has been removed. That would have been significant clean energy spending, disadvantageous tax policies for energy companies. So the divided government scenario um, certainly is more positive for the oil industry uh, in the US. Um, negative from a, a climate change perspective, but positive uh, for the oil industry. But you know, mm -hmm. Biden can still take actions and I expect him to take some regulatory actions. Uh, that would include, for example, denying permits for new drilling on federal lands, imposing restrictions on interstate uh, pipelines, for example, as well. So there are some things that he can still do. And you know, bigger picture, uh, and if we put the election aside, we still believe as a team that the, the same structural challenges exist for the oil industry. Um, oil is still an over, oversupplied commodity internationally, and, and that doesn't change. And um, 
we should also keep in mind that during the Trump years, uh, many states increased their regulations of, uh, regarding the oil and gas industry, and, and those aren't going away. If anything, those will, will get tougher as well. Well, um, all of this, of course, is, is speculation and uh, <laughs> it still remains to be seen uh, what actually happens at the end of, of the day. So uh, I was going to say to you, Steve, if, uh, if things turn out differently than, than we anticipate, I need to get you back on and we need to have this conversation again um, because, of course, it's still on hanging <laughs> on a knife edge at the moment. So um, but thank you very much for, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Obviously, normally we run this on a Wednesday, but it was nice of you to join us today for this special. Uh, any closing remarks, anything you'd like to say before we, uh, we wrap up today? Uh, no, just thank you. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. So thanks for having me back. Great. Okay. So um, next Wednesday, we have our morning espresso, which of course is in the morning at 10 o'clock at CET. And uh, so on the 11th, that's next Wednesday, I have Rene Peterson and Frederick Weber, and they are portfolio managers of our European Stars Equity Strategy. Remember, whenever we say stars, that's ESG. Um, so please join us for that. In the meantime, uh, don't forget to visit our Stay Alert website. Uh, that's at nordia.lu. And there you will find all of the past interviews. You'll find podcasts um, as well as Q&As. So uh, that's it for this special. And I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday.